Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Josh Noble and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. The scientific study of different forms of the human race has a bad history, culminating in the atrocities of Nazi Germany. But despite its discredited record, race science is enjoying something of a revival. Angela Saini has written a book about this, and she came into the FT studio to discuss it with Fred Studeman, our books editor, and Clive Cookson, our science editor. Angela, what prompted you to write this book? Well, it's an idea that's been brewing for a long time. Um, So one of the reasons I got into journalism in the first place is because I was involved in student politics at university around anti-racism, and that's how I started writing for the student press. And I wouldn't have been a journalist if I hadn't done that. I would have gone and been an engineer, (laughs) which is what I studied at university. So it's an issue that has been kind of there in my head for a very long time. But I think it's only with recent politics, I think that it's become a kind of story that other people want to read about. But I guess to those of us who don't follow the science, what is surprising is we think of race science as something that belongs to a different era. I mean, very infamously, the early mid 20th century. And it's this notion, and that's what struck me when I was looking at books for potential review, it's sort of leapt out and it's sort of why is this back and Mm. why is it back well in a way it never went away so yes we imagine that when the second world war ended that was the end of race science that eugenics and this kind of idea of racial groups and racial hierarchies kind of died in the 1940s and that didn't happen and I think within science we know that because when you look at medicine and when you look at genetics you can still see those frameworks there and also kind of on the grapevine if only uh, if you know more about it then you know just how prevalent it is you know that there are these scientific racists knocking about and they're becoming more and more vocal on the internet because of social media and these new platforms that they have and they're becoming harder to ignore so I think within science, it's kind of an open secret that they exist and that they've always been there. And of course, we've had our big figures throughout the second half of the 20th century, people like William Shockley, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who thought that black women should be sterilised, Arthur Jensen, who thought that black people had lower IQs than white people. So we've had these regular figures, most recently James Watson, who's finally been called out for his racism and brought to book. But I think now more than ever because of the political state that we're in and the rise of ethnic nationalism, these people have an audience that they didn't have before. And that is also driven partly by available media, is that right? Yeah, I think to a large part because the nature of social media as we know, it allows people to get their views out there and accumulate fans in a way that they just couldn't before. And so these people who have quite marginal views um, are suddenly finding each other. And interestingly, in the background, there are academic journals publishing papers, which one could describe as scientific racism. In your book, you talk particularly about one called Mankind Quarterly. That's published by the Ulster Institute for Social Research. Yeah. But that has links with other more reputable journals published by companies such as Elsevier. So there is an academic publishing background feeding into what you've been talking about. Just to be clear, Clive, I mean, are you saying these are reputable academic journals? Yes, some of them are. Whether the one which is the most vocal 
in promoting the idea of racial differences. Mankind Quarterly is reputable, is a matter for <laughs> debate. One, yeah. But some of the others are, it particularly comes out in some of the journals that I think you mentioned in your book about intelligence, for example. They have reputable academics, professors on their boards, but they also have some less reputable people. Perhaps you could say a little more about that, because I think that's the scientific core of what we're talking about now. Yeah, well, the Mankind Quarterly was set up expressly after the Second World War to publish the kind of research that nobody else would publish. So the really marginal, very virulent scientific research, and it was panned by scientists when it came out, but it's still in publication now, oddly. Is the institution from where it comes, is that a publicly funded institution? No, I've never heard of this no. Ulster, um, what's it, it called, the Ulster Institute for Social Research. Yeah, I looked into it. It calls itself a think tank. As far as I know, it is just a small collection of people. So they publish and cite their own research within this group. What's interesting, as Clive says, is that the people who edit this journal are on the editorial boards of journals published by Elsevier, which publishes The Lancet and Cell. And that we have to worry about. Right. Clive, can I just come to your interpretation of Angela's book? Because you've written the review for the FT. And you chose to begin with the image of Neanderthal man. I found that quite arresting as I was reading. Explain. That's very interesting because 10 years ago, amazingly enough, DNA was extracted from old Neanderthal bones, tens of thousands of years old. And sequence, so you've got the whole... Neanderthal genome. And guess what? It showed that Europeans living today have some Neanderthal genes in them, about 2%, whereas Africans had none. And I was aware of this, and it rang a bell when Angela put into her book, let's transform the image of Neanderthals. They're suddenly seen as not the old idea of the brutes who deserved to die out, but as sort of cultured, intelligent people who might have been wiped out by us brutal <laughs> modern humans. And that's completely transformed the image. In the 19th century, after Neanderthals were first discovered, their skeletons were discovered, the people who were thought to be most similar based on completely fallacious morphological arguments were Australian Aborigines. And that made Europeans think even worse of Aborigines. So these attitudes are very common. And the people who are learning to love Neanderthals now, they're not racist. But I think Angela is saying it just reflects an attitude in society, doesn't it? Or European society. Yeah, I think we have to be careful about throwing around the word racist because yes. we all have bias. I have it, you have it. Every single one of us has ideas about race, which we apply to ourselves and others. And those ideas get projected onto the research and also how that research gets interpreted in the wider world. And I think the Neanderthal case, for me, was a perfect example of this because in the past, when we had very little information about Neanderthals, they were used as an example of a kind of lower stage of humanity alongside everybody else who was thought at a lower stage of humanity, including Aboriginal Australians. They were used to justify ethnic cleansing, to justify wiping out a group of people, of treating them as less than human. And yet now, now that we know that actually it's Europeans that have this connection to Neanderthals, now they have become human. So once upon a time, they were used to 
deny real humans their humanity, and now they themselves have become human. Right. You said we need to be careful about how we use the word racist. But one thing I gathered from Clive's review, which I think lay people like myself would find perhaps surprising, is you are quite critical about what's called racialized medicine. And I think to a lot of us, we have come to understand that there are certain conditions which might be found more often among certain groups and therefore there would be different treatments that would be appropriate. But it seems from what Clive is writing, you're saying that's not the case or that we shouldn't view it like that. It's kind of complicated. So there are, of course, visible differences between groups of people. These aren't hard and fast. These are statistical average differences generally. And also they're not consistent across groups. So medicine is often used as the example of how race might be real because we know, for example, the sickle cell trait is found in America, in black Americans at a higher proportion than in white Americans. But globally, The existence of the sickle cell trait is because it exists in malaria-prone regions. So there are regions of the world in which people don't have black skin where they also have sickle cell. It's only because in the American context where you have white people of European ancestry, black people of West African ancestry, it starts to look racialized. But even then, it's still common enough in both groups that in most states both black and white babies are scanned for the trait because it exists in everybody. It may be in higher frequencies in one group than another, but it exists all over the world in lots of different groups. And again, it's also a rare example of one of these racialized traits. There are very few of them. You write particularly about a drug, a heart failure drug called Bidil, which was approved in America for black African-Americans only. And that does seem stretching things too far, doesn't it? Because the environmental factors that make African-Americans more susceptible to certain forms of heart disease are probably overwhelming any genetic factors, aren't they? Well, in this case, I feel that race is being used as a proxy for lifestyle and diet. So these are measures that we can't easily get a handle on because it's very difficult to ask someone what they're eating, you know, know how much salt what their salt intake is. And salt, we know, is the overwhelming cause of hypertension, high blood pressure. That's difficult to measure, but racial data we have because it's collected routinely. So it's a much easier way of collecting data. And we know that in America, black Americans tend to be of lower socioeconomic status. Their diets are poorer, so they will have higher hypertension. I should say that black Americans die of almost everything at greater rates than white Americans. Their life expectancy is lower than white Americans. So I find it bizarre sometimes that medical researchers keep looking for genetic explanations when it would be bizarre to assume that black Americans, which themselves are such a varied group because of the history of slavery, most black Americans have some white ancestry. that They are treated as this kind of homogeneous genetic group that are so genetically disadvantaged that they die of everything at higher rates than everyone else. It just doesn't make any sense. I wanted to move on to another issue, which again, you address in your book and Clive devoted some time to in his review of it, which is the issue of intelligence, which is seen as being perhaps, as Clive's put it, the most inflammatory trait to link with race. And This is something that has been around for quite a long time, but where is the sort of debate right now among areas you've been covering? 
Intelligence research is one of the strangest areas of science that I've ever had to look into as a journalist. I think Clive would agree with that. And that is because its history is very murky. So people who have tended to do this research have tended to be already of a certain political opinion. Committed to a, yes. a certain world. Like view. Arthur Jensen, like Cyril Burt. So Cyril Burt, who we know because he applied this idea of IQ testing to British society. He is a reason that children sat the 11 plus, why I sat the 11 plus. And we know that he cooked his books. You know, these people massaged their figures. They had these political views. And this is the legacy of intelligence research that we have now. IQ testing is such a loaded and difficult quantity. It's really the kind of stick that scientific racists use to beat everyone with because they say that IQ tests in different countries show different results, knowing that IQ tests are so culturally loaded that they can't be used to compare different populations. But do you think that research into the genetics of intelligence, where you're comparing different groups, is so capable of being misinterpreted and misused that it shouldn't take place. Because for brain research, knowing the basis of intelligence is so important. So how do we square that with the potential for misusing it? It's difficult. I wouldn't want to say that any kind of research should be off limits. I think if you can get it funded and peer-reviewed, then feel free to research whatever you want. The problem is... And for this, I interviewed Robert Plowman, who is one of the leading intelligence researchers. He has been described by some as a hereditarian. I don't do that myself. But his position is even that you cannot compare racial groups when it comes to intelligence because there is no accurate way of doing it because different groups are under different circumstances. Heritabilities vary depending on your circumstances. So if we know that, it's very difficult to say that one group is more intelligent genetically than another because in, for example, the lowest socioeconomic groups, heritability of intelligence can be zero. In groups in which everybody is well-fed and well-nourished and well-looked after, it can be as much as 50%, he says. So given those differences, how do you accurately do it? That's not to say it can't be done, but it needs to be approached with care, I think. Another question is, what do we mean by intelligence? I mean, you could say, thinking of the Aborigines in Australia, that the intelligence with which they have treated their environment is wonderful compared to anything that anyone else has done. I mean, what is intelligence? That's the thing. I don't think we've been able to pin it down. And this is another question, really. I don't explore it at length, but there is a huge and wonderful literature kind of exploring what is this quantity we call intelligence? We have in the West one idea of what it is, but in different societies they have different ideas of what it is. Is it creativity? Is it abstract thinking? Is it the ability to count up to a certain level or do complex calculations? We don't really know. And like I said, these are culturally loaded things. What I find promising and hopeful is that researchers now are treating other cultures with the kind of sympathy and empathy that for so long only European cultures have been treated with. And as we do that, perhaps we'll get a broader and more holistic understanding of what it means to be human. Just final question. You've, both in this discussion and in your book, have described the situation and the dangers that this poses. Do you see any moves within the scientific establishment or are you hopeful that there would be some moves to push back or to mount a counter-argument? 
Well, my book, some people have read it already. I've done some articles. And what has been really brilliant to see is particularly population geneticists engaging with this and admitting that sometimes there are problems within the field, the frameworks that they use, the language that they use sometimes. So, for example, one of the examples I give in the book is of the very famous population geneticist, Luigi Luca Cavalli-Sforza, who kind of pioneered the field. He died, sadly, last year. But when I interviewed him, he described mixed race or mixed heritage people as hybrids which is completely scientifically and morally the inappropriate language to use. But you still see that kind of language being used. And it's because I think it betrays the problems within the field fundamentally that because of this kind of focus on the margins of the human genome where we differ and everything else gets ignored, that we lose sight of actually the overall commonality there. And that is something geneticists have to emphasise and perhaps realign their field with that reality rather than focusing on difference, which has been the problem that has dogged science since the Enlightenment. Angela Saini, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Clive. Thank you. That was Fred Studeman, FT Books Editor, talking to writer Angela Saini and Clive Cookson, FT Science Editor. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on whether Apple's App Store is stifling the competition, Indian expectations for Modi's second term in office, or the proposed merger between Fiat, Chrysler and Renault, you can find them all on our usual podcast platforms.